Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Mothers and dads, the Bible said, train up a child. And here's your training book right here. You don't need the family services. You don't need the State Department of Human Resources. You need the Department of Divine Resources, the Word of God. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm really thankful that you're you're joining me today. Thank you. Absolutely. So I, I like to take these conversations really back to the beginning and get to know how people got introduced to fundamentalism, particularly people who reach out to me from these quote unquote troubled teen homes is, was it something that you grew up in? Was it something that you came into at a younger age? Tell me a little bit about your start in the fundamentalist movement. Okay. I was born in 1970 and about that time, or maybe a little bit before or a little bit after my parents began attending a faith Baptist church in Milton, Florida. And in Florida is, and Pensacola, Florida, are both pretty heavily hit by uh, fundamentalism. They're centers for, right. for independent fundamental Baptists. And uh, so they, I was, uh, my parents were attending there. One of my earliest memories of childhood was being babysat by the pastor's wife and being in their home. And I don't have a lot of memories from that time, except just I do vaguely remember that the pastor was a rather stern man, and he liked to yell a lot in the pulpit. I guess when I was about somewhere between five or six, my parents, my father owned a hardware store in the area, and he uh, sold his half of the hardware store. And 
moved back to my mother and father's old hometown, which is up in Bruton, Alabama. And uh, so my parents also had become aware of another ministry in Milton, which was called Gospel Projects. And they had a school called Santa Rosa Christian School, because Milton is in Santa Rosa County. And uh, my parents began me in kindergarten, busing all the way from Bruton, Alabama, down to Milton, Florida, which was an hour bus ride one way, going to this Christian school. So I would get on a bus very early in the morning, ride for an hour down to the Christian school, go to school, get out of school, go to their daycare, and just hang out in the daycare for a few hours, and get on a bus and ride back home. And I was basically a latchkey kid. I, I would let myself in at home, and I can remember it like age seven or eight, frying myself eggs and making myself an egg sandwich to eat and being in the house by myself, right. playing out in the yard by myself. My parents had been missionaries back in the 1950s in Kenya. Okay. And they were very, they didn't have a bit of problem with farming their children out to, to other people to take care of them. Sure. Uh, that with both of my sisters in Africa, they sent them like, I guess it was like a hundred miles away to a, a Mennonite school, boarding school. Wow. Uh, they were being, doing their missionary thing. These yeah. Mennonites were raising my elementary age sisters. So you very much were raised by the church more than anything. It was just being raised within the culture, but your parents were very much just serving that culture. They were serving the fundamentalist kind of mission, so to speak. Yeah. And on top of that, you had the uh, issue of that my mother was essentially mentally ill. Hmm. She was mentally ill and she was on medication for her issues and which created a whole nother set of problems because in fundamentalism, if you have a, a mental health problem that is not doesn't require you to be in a mental hospital yeah then it's a spiritual problem right so this created a great deal of uh, conflict in my mother's life she was constantly uh like this with the christian beliefs she didn't doubt her christianity but uh, she resented the fact that she was looked down on spiritually because she was going to a psychiatrist. Mm. And so that's a whole nother right. thing. But it created instability in the home. Yeah. It created instability in me personally. A child gets their sense of self and their sense of safety and their sense of feeling good about the world from mom and dad. Right. And that's not there then they rely on things outside of that. And if they're not getting it from what's outside of that either, it's uh, psychologically, I think it's debilitating. Now, different people react different ways. Right. But I know that for me personally, I was a very sensitive child. Hmm. I'm a musician. What does that mean? But I am a musician. 
I express myself through emotion. My emotions are right on the surface with me. You know, I can watch a commercial about toilet paper and I'm like, oh man, I'm so sad. <laughs> it's a family. So at any rate, trying to get back to the point here. At the Christian school, they were extremely strict. Mm. They were very rigorous, very hard. The paddlings started pretty early. Right. And I was a very touchy-feely, kinetic kind of kid. I had to move and I also had to touch. And I had to talk all the time. I had to talk. I'm still that way. My, my wife will tell you, <laughs> do you ever shut up? But at any rate, Starting in kindergarten, the paddling started first on the hand. And this is like a daily thing. I mean, daily. I I literally have had hundreds of corporal punishments. I estimated one time, I know that it was like daily all the way through elementary school. But to give them a break, I calculated if it was like every day, if it was like every other day, it would have been 400, 500, something like that. That's just not normal. You don't paddle somebody hundreds of times, uh, a little child. The other thing that they did, because I was so touchy-feely and couldn't stop teasing the girl next to me, and I really liked girls. Oh, from I can't remember. I never went through that phase where boys are like, oh, man, girls suck. I always liked girls, so I was always interested in the girls. Well, they put me in a desk, a different kind of desk, the regular kind of desk uh, with the little front on it. Right. In the corner, away from the entire class, for almost the complete kindergarten and all of first grade, I sat separate from all the other kids, and I was the only one that did this. Yeah. They did this too. I sat alone while the other kids sat at tables and could interact with each other. Yeah. After third grade, I guess they had opened up another school. It was the same school, but they opened up Century Christian School in, uh, in Century, Florida. And I don't okay. know if it was because they were having problems with me, disciplinary-wise, probably. And the school was a little bit closer physically and they had a bus route, they put me in the Century Christian School. And uh, there the principal was uh, a woman by the name of uh, Mrs. Stedham. She was like this five-foot-two thin woman with a 1960s hairstyle. And, man, she was, she should have been a nun. I mean, Hmm. she was... She broke paddles on me. Yeah. From fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. Seventh grade, they didn't have that at Century. The Century Christian School only went up to sixth grade. They sent me back to the Santa Rosa School. I went for a few months. They finally, I went, they sent me to the office for something. And I remember they sent me to the principal of the high school, which was unusual. Yeah. The principal of the high school called my father and said, we are not going to paddle him anymore. We can't discipline him. We can't control him. 
And it wasn't that they couldn't control me. It's just they weren't going to deal with me anymore. Right. So then I entered public school. And so that's, that is the end of that chapter. I don't yeah. know if you have any questions. Yeah, no. So you're essentially, you're being raised, like you said, by the ministries that your parents were connected to. And they're basically outsourcing parenting you. Like you're sleeping at home, but you're living at these different places. And you're, it's, it sounds, unless you're not, unless you're not sure anything, it sounds like you're not being able to be controlled. It seems like you were very just extroverted and outspoken. It doesn't sound like it was, you weren't lighting off cherry bombs in the school bathroom or something. Like it, it sounds like you were trying to process these emotions, these experiences, like this need for attention, essentially like this desire to be seen and, and heard and getting pushed off to the side, both at home and in the school, which is why this seems like it compounded with frustration on both sides. What was the point where obviously you went to the public school, where was the point where your family decided to say, okay, let's consider the route of anchor and start really pushing you out even further and just completely sending you to one of these homes? I was in public school for seventh and eighth grade in Bruton, Alabama. Okay. And uh, that was a whole different kind of uh, bad experience because uh, coming from the outside, it was a little small town. I got bullied a lot. Hmm. I was a small kid. I didn't fit in. My parents didn't let me dress. I was still dressing like the little fundamentalist. Right. In in Bruton, Alabama, not wearing Levi's or Lee jeans and not wearing Nike shoes and either a polo or Izod shirt was enough to get you pounded. So that in eighth grade, performing group came from the Alabama School of Fine Arts to perform at our school. After they got done, they were demonstrating uh, the instruments. And the head of the school, who was the principal, or no, he was the head of the music program. He would demonst- had them demonstrate the violin, and he said, can anyone here play the violin? And I go, and they called me down there, and I played the violin just a little bit. I think I just played mm. a scale. The kids erupted, because <sighs> they had never heard me play the violin before. Right. So next year, I ended up going to the Alabama School of Fine Arts. It was perfect for my parents because they had a dorm there. Right. So my parents sent me off to Alabama School of Fine Arts. I, I auditioned and got accepted. Ninth grade. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or known somebody like this, but my experience was that because I had been in such a strict environment, I did not know how to govern myself. Mm. And once I got in this environment with more freedom, I just went, woohoo. And so I get into this dorm, and some of the other kids, there's creative writing majors, and they're ballet majors. And these guys have JVC jam boxes, and they're listening to the violent femmes and the the butthole surfers. No. Uh, sorry, parental <laughs> advisory. Uh, and they're drinking vodka. Now, I didn't drink any alcohol. 
but I got started smoking. And I remember guys being in my room and they were, they were drinking and they're like taking markers and writing on the walls, red glowing lips on the walls. <laughs> it yeah. was a crazy place. Hmm. And I got started smoking and I also was staying up really late at night and then sleeping through like my first one or two classes. Or I would go to class and just be like, which was algebra class. And um, so the, the school contacts my parents. And I'm sorry for going into such detail. No, 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 you're fine. The school contacts my parents like, we're going to have to put uh, Ben, let him go home for a couple of days as a punishment. My parents decide that it's not just going to be a couple of days. And they bring, put me in the car and they say, we've decided we're going to send you to this boarding school and it's a wonderful place. They're Christian people and they'll love you and they're going to, you'll really love it there and there'll be activities that you can be involved in yeah. and all this yeah. stuff. And I'm like, I was not happy about this. Right. I, I, I remember begging in front of the school administrators, so please don't do this. Just let me go home for a couple of days and I'll come back and I'll be fine because uh, I loved this place. I was getting to uh, have weekly violin lessons with really great teachers and perform. So they carry me off. I get there and it's okay. What is this place? And was this your first exposure to like the Lester Roloff kind of brand of fundamentalism or was your family familiar with them already at this point? The Baptist church where we went was, was like that. And my okay. parents, they knew. Yeah. And, and my father was a big follower of my brother, who's 14 years older than I am. And I'm not going to say his name, but anybody at Bob Jones is going to know when they see this and they'll see it. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Every time uh, I talk about a, a college, I see a little spike from those areas. So. Yeah. And my brother, who's 14 years older than I am, was a professor at Bob Jones University for years. Oh, really? You can figure out from the, the numbers there that, that by the time I was in high school, my parents were thoroughly acquainted with Bob Jones University. Right. If you look, if you go back and watch some of the old films of Lester Roloff, you'll see that Bob Jones, Jack Hiles, all those people were like this with Lester Roloff. Yeah. And they were all supporting him. They had all come out and said, yeah, if he goes to jail, then this leader is going to step in and take his place. And if they arrest him, then we're going to, and we're just going to keep right. filling in and, and we're going to keep this place going. Yeah. He was uh, so controversial, even at that, especially at that time in the seventies, I've got, I've got literally newspapers from like 1973. And if you stacks of them of like this one, roll off home agrees to meet standards, like literally lighthouse camp for boys shut down 1974. Like they were under so much heat from these organizations because they wouldn't follow simple guidelines from 
the the equivalent of CPS in whatever area they were in. And so, yeah, there was, and then when you look at it, what's interesting is when you look at this and then you look at a, a page from their own magazines, the persecution complex versus the total shirking of rules that they were actually expressing is really shot. You get to see the propaganda version of the news cycle essentially. Yeah. So I'm in, I get there for, for people who have, do not know, I want to describe the place a little bit. Yeah. Okay. First of all, you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're on like a county road in the country in uh, East Texas, just outside of Corpus Christi. Yeah. And uh, you get there and it's this huge farm, acres and acres. And there's this People's Baptist Church, which is just a typical huge Baptist building. And uh, you turn on there, you go down a long dirt road. And uh, then you get to this place and there's this little block. I shouldn't say little, it's pretty big block yeah. building. And it's surrounded by a chain link fence with barbed wire all the way around the top. Yeah. And I get in there, they check me in. My parents and I say goodbye. And they have a, a young guy lead me into the back where the inmates are, <laughs> where, right. the, where the students are. Yeah. And they're on some sort of like after school, I think it's in the afternoon. And it's chaos. Back there, the kids are in the gym, the, the common area, and it's loud, and I don't know who any of these kids are, and I'm freaking out. They close the door. They take me into a place where they store all the stuff. They go through all my stuff, and the young guy sits there. He takes my John Lennon sunglasses, and he puts them on. It's cool, man. And then he finds my cigarettes. He takes one of my cigarettes and he holds up the lighter to it like this. He teases me about that. They pack my stuff away and he leads me, takes me in. And the place is basically four cell blocks. They're not cell blocks. They're like a, a dorm. Each one is a separate common sleeping area. And you have a, a central area that's the common area where we would meet for worship services, and we would line up to go to meals. And then there are four wings, and those, and I was in the orange. Hmm. Each one had a color, it was like orange, blue, green, and red, I think. I'm just now remembering this. We had these hideous uh, bedspreads, yeah. the, the color for our dorm. You had a little area with the lockers, and you had a locker like you would, like the smallest locker you can imagine. It didn't even go from the floor to the ceiling. Just a small little locker like this was for all your stuff. Crammed everything in there. And you were assigned a buddy. And you had to stay with that buddy for a month. Everywhere you went, you had to be with that buddy. And so that's my earliest memories. It was just yeah. like chaos, scared half to death. Couldn't contact my parents for a month. And when you did get to contact your parents, I believe it was once a month. Yeah. And it was for like five minute phone call. Yeah. And you were allowed to write 
letters, like one letter a week or something like that. You, maybe you could write more. I can't remember. The phone call for five minutes, they were sitting there listening to you and they had their finger on the phone that if you said anything that you weren't supposed to say, like criticizing the home or saying, oh, get me out of here or uh, they're not treating me right or something like that. The language you use when you arrived, the cell block inmates, like it's very obviously evocative of prison or jail imagery. And that's really how these homes ran was they were unofficial, like teen jails. They're basically a a juvie that wasn't juvie. And when you listen to a lot of Roloff's messages, that was his thing. It was like, they can go to prison or die or go to these homes, which what's so crazy about that is then when I hear stories from people who've gone so often, the story is not, they were in a gang, they were doing this, they were attacking people. Like it's, I was smoking or I went to a theater or I listened to music or it's these very extreme consequences for things that are not, yeah, obviously should, do you want your teenage kids smoking? Probably not. But is it a, to lock them into a facility, limit phone calls, do all these things that it really doesn't make sense. And the other thing that's really shocking to me hearing your story is this is 1980, yeah, 1985. So what's crazy about it is I've talked to people who are in Roloff influenced homes, at least like all of these trouble teen homes in the IP were influenced by Roloff, but so many people that I've talked to from the early two thousands or mid two thousands or late nineties have described so much of what you just talked about, the hand on the receiver to hang up if they need to, the monitored letters, the the splitting off in dorms, like the buddy system, all that stuff just repeats over and over again. And it's crazy. Like I said, holding up a 1974 newspaper, holding up a 2021 paper and seeing so many of these same things laid out. It's crazy. All of these, uh, when I have had the same experience, whenever I read or listen to an interview of someone from one of these seemingly disconnected homes, I'm hearing the exact same pattern, which means all of these people were raised in the same tradition. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, what what was your day-to-day? Obviously, when you go, there's a huge shock. You're going, you essentially go from an exciting, freeing, creative experience to a lockdown of sorts. What was the day-to-day like in anchor home? Like when you, what was like waking up to going back to sleep? What was the kind of day-to-day schedule like? It was uh, constant terror. I want to describe a little bit what my mind was like when I first got there. Now I'm 15. I'm 15. I went in October 31st. I'm terrible at remembering dates about anything. I can't even remember, this is sad to say, I can't remember exactly my mother or my father's birthday. Hmm. But I remember the day I went into Anchor. So I was so in shock. My mother, just before I had left, I realized I didn't have a comb or a hairbrush. And my mom gave me her green goodie hairbrush and I had some envelopes that they gave me for writing letters. 
I took one of the envelopes and I pulled my mother's hair out of the hairbrush and I put it in the envelope and I would carry the envelope in my pocket hmm. to try to have some kind of connection with my normal life. And that was basically it. So we would wake up in the morning. Most of, if not all of our, each block had a, a supervisor, so to speak, what they actually, dorm supervisor. Yeah. And most of, if not all of these supervisors were working there at, I don't know how to word this, but they were serving parole from prison by working there. So they're basically volunteering as part of their, as part of their sentencing. Yeah. And they were core guys. They were, especially there was one guy in who was uh, violent and he, he was a little, had his own little, and uh, you didn't cross one of his gang. Yeah. So they would hang out with him in the common area and he would send them out for like little mischievous things. So he, he sends out one of them over to me uh, in, the, in the common area one day and he tries to start a fight with me and I punched him in the nose, gave him a bloody nose. Hmm. And he comes over and I didn't start a fight with him. I never started a fight with anybody. I just yeah. wanted to be left alone. He comes over to me and he would always put his arms like this. And he goes, well, well, why did you hit him? He had a bad stutter. And I said, I hit him because he hit me first. And then he looks over at his, his little gang and he goes, he got hit first. And then he goes, hmm. backhands. But a friend of mine later that I, I made later while I was in Missouri, was this big, tall black guy named John Dye. John, if you happen to be one, contact with me. I've been trying to find John Dye for years and years. Hmm. John had a, a scar about yay long across here where he had been backhanded by the same guy and it had knocked his teeth all the way through. Yeah. So the day-to-day -day life was uh, terror. Early in the morning, they'd flip on the lights. The guard would walk down the row of beds, hitting the beds with a two-by-four and say, get up. And then by the time he got to the end of the row of beds, he would turn around. And if anybody was still in their bed, he would go to their bed and would forcibly dump them out of the bed. No. So we all got up. We would make our beds. Then immediately we had to sit down in front of our beds and open our Bible and sit there and read the Bible for 30 minutes or something like that. Then we would get done reading the Bible we put the Bible away. We would line up for uh, meals in four lines. Then we would have to sing, Come and dine, the master calleth, come in. And we'd sing that song. Yeah. And I would always sit there and sing harmony. I was, and then we would file into, into the dining area. We'd have to be silent. 
if you got caught speaking, you would be put up against the wall with your nose against the wall like this. And you would have to stand for maybe 10, 15 minutes, something like that. And then every so often a guard would come by and push your head into the wall. Right. But you'd get your food and you wouldn't be sitting there in silence. You would be sitting to the sound of, I can't remember the words, but it's Lester Roloff singing by the highway. Begging, his eyes were blind. The light he could not see He clutched his old rags And shivered in the shadows Then Jesus And then he would be preaching to us And his darkness And it's really ironic Because it's really A lot like A monastery hmm. This is what monasteries do In a monastery you uh, sit in meal, at meals in silence while one of the one of the brothers reads the scriptures and the lives of the saints. You get done with your meal, you go clean it, clean up your areas, clean up the bathrooms. I had to clean the urinal. Get dressed for school. You had to wear your little 1776 American flag. What was it? The Christian school system where you have a little flags. I can't remember what that's called. I'm not sure. The, they were like they're like uh, pins. It's like a Christian school system where you have little booklets. Oh, uh, and, ACE. The ACE. Yeah, ACE. So we had an ACE school there. So you had these little American flag ties you had to wear, and a light blue short sleeve shirt and blue sh- pants and dress shoes if you had them. You go in there and you do your ACE school. One of my first, the only class that I had that was like a traditional class, one of the teachers was having a literature class and we were reading Pilgrim's Progress. So the first class in there, he has me go in, I go in there and we read he asks a, a question about what does it mean? And I raised my hand immediately. I explained the theological meaning of it. And he's like looking at, at me like, like this. I get done with class. I go sit down in my little uh, desk. And he walks out of the class and he's this big, huge man. He's walking through and then he stops at my desk. And he looks over me and he goes, Ben, he said, yes. He says, oh, sorry, sorry, it cut out really quick. So he came over and he said, he said, Ben, that's where it cut out right there. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, He said, why are you here? Good question. (laughs) And I said, I I was smoking. And he just shakes his head and he, he walks off. And I think the reason that he was reacting that way was that he could tell that I was on a completely different intellectual level than 90% of the kids there. I had two or three friends that were there and there were a few of us who were bright. We really shouldn't have been in that environment. We were not drug heads. 
or Alkies or something like that or coming out of a inner city gang or something right. like that. But there were kids like that there. And that's what made it terrifying was that you had kids that were there who were extremely violent. That's what's so and, odd about it. It's this melting pot of people with no rhyme or reason as to why outside of parents deemed it or a pastor convinced parents it was necessary for this to happen. But like you do, you do, you have kids there that are the, I think of agape, you've got kids that are former gang members or literally are actively part of a gang. And then you have a 12 year old kid who talked back to his parents a few times, but it's like such a weird spectrum and it's straight. It's a very scary thing for someone who's, who is for the most parts, a quote unquote good kid. Yeah. And the, the other thing that people need to realize about this, if you are pondering doing this, don't. Your, your child, unless they are like threatening people with death or something like that, they're going to end up worse. Hmm. By the time I got out, you couldn't scare me with anything. Yeah. And I was so messed up in the head. So after I had been there a few months, I'm just thinking, I remember things. And so I'm just sharing at random. After I had been there a couple of months, they found out, they knew that I could play the violin, but they had me come to the office after my first month. And they had me get my violin out. They gave me my violin and had me play. Well, I played for them and they let me have my violin Hmm. because they had a television program. There was another guy who was there who was a very talented pianist. And and this kid was, I say kid, he didn't seem like a kid. He seemed like almost like an adult. He was doing calculus. He was doing ACE calculus. No. I remember that. I was like, wow, what's calculus? <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. And he was telling me, explaining it to me. They had me appear on their television broadcast. And Wiley Cameron, Lester Roloff had already died at this point. And Wiley Cameron, who was his right-hand man, had taken over as senior pastor. And he gets up in the pulpit and he says, we're going to have a young man come and speak to us and and play for us on his violin. He came, when he came to us, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. But after he came here, he learned how to play the violin. And he's now going to share for you his talent. I began playing the violin when I was about four or five. Yeah. And I had private lessons for years, years and years of expert training in order to be able to do what I did. Yeah. And he just straight up lied uh, to people. And my experience at church there was we sat there in the church. We were in one area. Then on the other side is where the girl's home sat. And then there were the other people. I never remember seeing any or interacting with any of the other church people. 
Yeah. Because we were brought in a side door. Did you ever see the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I haven't. You remember? The- oh, man. You- it's, on, it's on my list. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah. There's one scene where they bring the inmates into the movie theater to watch a movie. Hmm. And for their, I guess they they were required. They, they bring them in in, in iron ankles, ankle irons, iron ankles, ankle irons. And they march them in a side door and they're like, get them. <laughs> it was like that. They would bring us in on a school bus. They'd open up the side door and we'd line up, line in and, and walk in in single file until we had filled up the pews. We didn't turn. You didn't turn around and look. You didn't anything. You just sat there. Because if you misbehaved in church, after church, you were going to get it. Yeah. So we would listen to the, we would sing, we would listen to the sermon. And at the end, they would have an altar call. And basically, every altar call, I would go forward, kneel down on the steps. They had burgundy carpet. I would kneel down and I would cry my eyes out and I would beg God to let me get out of this place. Hmm. And that was my only prayer. And aside from praying for my parents' welfare. Yeah. So corporal punishment was meted out on a regular basis. Christmas time, I got a banjo. My parents sent me a banjo. That was crazy. (laughs) Who sends their kids a banjo? Uh, Anyway, so I get a banjo. Then soon after Christmas, they load us all up on buses in the middle of the night to pack all our stuff and and carry us to Missouri. Hmm. They didn't let us get off the bus. I think maybe they let us get off the bus once to use the bathroom. No. But they would have us open the windows and they would hand us food through the windows. Hmm. And I remember being so tired. I had never realized before that you could sleep with your forehead on an iron bar bouncing like this. Yeah. And we got to the place and it was a three-story dormitory. And I don't even know the name of the Bible college. I've been trying to research and find out what the name of it was. Yeah. On the campus of a Bible college. They put us on the third floor all except they didn't have enough room for all of us on the third floor so they put a few of us that were the most trusted on the second floor i was one of those Hmm. they made a mistake i was there for a total of eight months at the new place in missouri no i at the home or at the home total okay home for eight months I was the only kid who successfully escaped. Hmm. I escaped twice. I know you say that doesn't make sense. After I escaped the first time, my father reported me. Oh, gotcha. And had them come pick me up. Hmm. I was at a Walmart. I was sitting in their like employee lounge. I look up. There's the people from the home. So I escaped from that second floor. They had riveted all of the windows in the whole dormitory 
so that they were open this much hmm. so that you couldn't open it wider and you couldn't shut it. But they hadn't riveted the windows in the supervisor's rooms. The supervisor for our floor left his door unlocked. Hmm. I found it unlocked. I quickly slipped in. He had a record player. I don't know what I was thinking, but he had a record player room. And so I put the record on. Thought, well, this will make some noise. So they you had your Shawshank Redemption moment. <laughs> yeah. So I, I put the record player on. There was some change on the table. Yes, I stole. I'm not ashamed of it either. I took the little bit of change that was on his uh, dresser. And I dropped out of the second story window and I booked it. So they caught me. I came back. They took all of us that were on the second floor and put us all. Fast forward a few months. I was on the detail that cleaned the dining hall for breakfast. Yeah. So after breakfast, I, we cleaned up. And then we were having to carry the garbage out. The front door was one of those doors that is on a pneumatic thing. And yeah. when it swings shut, click, it locks from both directions. You can't come in from the outside. You can't go out from the inside. As we're walking to carry the garbage out, I have a flash in my mind. I pretend to drop the garbage, and when I bend over to pick up the garbage, I pick up a stone. We go, we throw the garbage out, we're, we're walking back in the line to go back in, and I just very quickly take the stone and bend over, and stick it in the corner of the uh, door jam. Yeah. The door swings like this and doesn't quite close. We line up to, to go upstairs. I purposely get at the end of the line. We go up the stairwell and when the kids uh, go up the second row of stairs, I don't take the turn, I just peel off. Go back down the stairs, slip out the door, go out a few steps and I can see the head of the home who was a, a Puerto Rican man. I can't hmm. remember his name. I, I remembered his name the other day, but I can't remember his name anymore. I could see him through the window talking to another a staff member. And I'm like, what do I do? And I just decided to run. And I ran. There was an Air Force base. That should help us figure out what, where this place was. There was an Air Force base near the campus. The border of it was. Right. I knew this. I, I purposely ran toward it. And I ran toward it to make them think that I was going to, for some reason in my mind, I had the idea that if I went toward the military base, they would think that I got picked up by military police hmm. for trespassing. So I ran straight like I was headed for the military base. 
And then I did a, a long circle and headed back the opposite direction. I remember there was a, uh, a neighborhood pub and I went in the pub and sat down and I said, hey, is it okay if I just sit here for a few minutes? Yeah. And the bartender was like, okay, that's fine. So I just sat down for a few minutes just to, in case they were, could, uh, were chasing me. Yeah. They wouldn't know where I was because I knew they wouldn't go in there. <laughs> right. So I make it to Kansas City. I was at a bus station or an airport or something like that. I had enough change. I bought a Coke. Hmm. I bought a Coke at a concession stand. I got on the payphone. I called my dad collect. As I was walking there, I had seen a, a motorcycle shop where they were like a chop shop. I mean, not a chop shop. They were making choppers. Yeah. Building uh, Harleys. So I get on the phone. I, I said to my dad, I want you to swear before God that you are not going to call them and, and make me go back there, but that you are going to bring me home as quickly as you can. Hmm. And if you will not do that, there's a biker gang down the street. And they told me that they'll give me a place to stay. I knew that would freak him out. No biker gang had, had told me that. But I was desperate. Yeah. So he promised me. And I knew my dad. My father was a very moral man. And if he said he was going to do something, he did it. Yeah. So then they flew me home. By the time I got home, I was so sunburned. The skin was peeling off of me all over from being exposed. When I got back, I went back to the home just long enough to pack up my stuff and get an airplane ticket. When I got back there, there were several kids that had their heads shaved because when they heard that I had escaped, then they tried to escape hmm. and they failed. Yeah. Was the name of the, was the name of the church people's Baptist? Was that yes. the church? Okay. That okay. was the church in Texas. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then after the move, that's where you're trying to figure out. Sounding, you know? Yeah. So right. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I was Googling because you were saying you're trying to remember the name of the church. So I was looking at a couple of different things. And what's interesting is you mentioned Wiley Cameron, and I pulled up an article from 2000, and his wife was actually banned from working at any children's homes because of because of the state regulatory agency determined she committed neglect and physical abuse. and And she fought that for a long time, but never... It never got anywhere, never got to overturn that. So it was just interesting because you had mentioned Wiley Cameron. I was looking for the church and interesting seeing that his wife ended up being banned from working with children because of neglect in the homes. But anyway, but yeah, I was curious. I was looking for the Missouri church, but I was curious if that was the name of the one in Texas. So you shared a property with Rebecca, the Rebecca home for girls then. Yeah, it was physically a fair distance. Separate buildings, but same, all connected to that same church. Because that's where I recognize people's from is I've talked to people from Rebecca home, which they, there was crossover with the church there. Yeah, I think you'll find less people from Anchor Home willing to talk than you will Rebecca. 
And I've noticed that in our culture, you're much less likely to have men yeah. who are willing to admit that they were in abusive situations. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a, it's an it's really unfortunate, and it, it's difficult to find people like it, it's true. I've been lucky that some from Agape have talked about it, but it is it's a lot harder to get guys because it is it's there's a cultural stigma about being overpowered by anybody. It's the same reason that any kind of abuse case is far less reported with male survivors or or victims of of abuse. So I, look, I, obviously the experience here very traumatic. You wanted out like enough to escape twice. What did this do to your faith? Because obviously you mentioned praying to get out. What was your experience after getting out of this, after getting to go home? Was your faith shook? Did you still have any faith? Were you, did you have faith, but you knew this wasn't it? What was your, what were the spiritual ramifications of this? I still had faith. And at that point, yeah, it would, I, my faith would be shaken later. Okay. But really, uh, you know, everything just in my life came to a head much later. And say, everything came, the results of all my experiences in fundamentalism really just came to a head, really, when I was about in my early 30s. Okay. It took that long for everything to play out. And it's still playing out. It still affects me to this day. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about it, and and I just had this conversation with a friend of mine, like you're taught this way of believing longer than you're taught arithmetic and spelling and how to write your name. Like you are taught one way to believe for if you're, I'm 26, I spent 18 years specifically hearing one worldview from the time that I knew how to understand words. Like even before that, like in my, in the womb. So 18 years plus nine months hearing these teachings. And when you are that rooted in it, when you are that, it's almost impossible to objectively examine anything. Like when it's a second nature, like IFB theology was a second nature to me for 18 years as the sky is blue and grass is green. Like you are totally indoctrinated and that sounds culty, but it is (laughs) you're in it. Like for me, I was at church seven days a week for you. It sounds like same story. Like you were in it constantly. And so it is, it's very interesting trying to open up years later and really understand it. Still got my Bible (laughs) right in front of you. I was, but it, it is, it's second nature. It's very hard now and trying to whatever you want to call it deconstruct or navigate it or because at the back of your mind like that is pre-programmed like it's in there as deeply as any other thing yeah but but yeah and i know you went to bob jones for a period after coming back what fueled that what was the motivation for that i had as you can imagine when i went back to high school I did you go back high- to a christian school or back to that public school no, I went to a different public school. Okay. It was actually a little bit better. It was more of a laid back country area yeah. in Century, Florida, where everybody's just a redneck. Hey, son, how you doing? All right. And uh, I wouldn't say I had like super close friends, and I wouldn't say that I was like 
Mr. Cool or anything, but I got along okay there. Yeah. But, but my behavior as far as classes and this sort of thing was terrible. I skipped school. Yeah. I was reenacting my escape. Anytime I was in a situation that I felt uncomfortable, I was gone. Yeah. And so when I'm about 18 or so, my church, which was, I think it, the name of it was Catawba Springs Baptist Church. Okay. It was a Southern Baptist Church. We went to a, a teen summer camp, hmm. and it was really great. They had lots of praise music and stuff like that, which having been come from a fundamentalist background, I wasn't too cool with that. I didn't yeah. really like that. But the preaching was very inspiring. Hmm. And at the end of the thing, they had the, their last big blowout service. I'm, they're having a, a thing where you can come forward and rededicate yeah. your life for service. And I'm tears are coming down my face because... The, this is what's weird. The, the one theme in my whole life has been, I want to serve God. That's the number one thing. So tears are streaming down my face. I go forward. I rededicate my life. And when I get back from that thing, I'm on fire, man. I start a group in my church of teens to go out and go door to door hmm. witnessing people. Nobody in our church did that. Yeah. And I went to Ruckman's. I don't know if you know who Ruckman is. Oh, I know who Ruckman is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I went to Ruckman's bookstore and bought uh, a bunch of materials. I bought uh, chick tracts and I bought a, a New Testament that I marked the Romans road in just like they show how to do in the books. And man, I was on fire. I get a girlfriend. Uh Oh, then that Peter's out and she is going off to finish school for, to become a pharmacist. Hmm. And she breaks up with me devastated. So I decide that it must be God's will for me to go to Bob Jones University. And my impression of Bob Jones had always been positive because I was trained as a classical musician. And as especially at that time, classical music was a big emphasis. Yeah. yeah all the liberal arts stuff is a huge push. At, I, I consider Bob Jones for a long time because they had a media program and I was interested in video production and things like that. So there's a big yeah. draw for me. Yeah. So if, have you ever seen the movie, The Printing? No, I, I, I haven't. Is that one of their productions? Yeah, it's one of their movies. I they have so in, many. <laughs> yeah. I was in the, the orchestra that recorded for we had a small recording orchestra mm. and uh, got to record the sound for that. And that was a really great experience. Yeah. So after about a year and a half of Bob Jones, 
I was having psychological struggles. My mother had talked me into going on, going to a psychiatrist and getting on a medication. I was having uh, depression. Hmm. So I'm on this medicine called Cinequan. You should look it up to see the effects. The effects are essentially the first time you take it, you sleep for 24 hours. Hmm. And then for the first few days you've taken it, you're, you still have your depression, but you have no anxiety. So you're just like, oh, things aren't working out. Well, who cares? Very lethargic about it. Yeah. So I'm there at Bob Jones. I'm struggling to meet the requirements as far as behavior and obeying the rules. Yeah. And I run out of my medication. I start freaking out. I go into, into Barge. Barge is the hospital on campus there. Oh, okay. I call the head of the string department and because I'm not getting along with my violin teacher. And if you're anybody who's a music major, your relationship with your private teacher, that's like the relationship, like a, a Shaolin monk with the, with the head of the monastery. Yeah. So I'm contacting the head of the department saying, listen, I need to switch to a different violin professor because frankly, the violin professor that I had at Bob Jones, she was very talented and she was very knowledgeable. She was also crazy, loony. At any rate, because I'm freaking out because of not having the medication, my mother has my, somehow they get my prescription refilled. I start to take the medicine again. I sleep for 24 hours and I miss a whole bunch of classes and I don't care. No. And so I miss about two days worth of classes sleeping in my dorm room. I hardly, I leave my room to eat. That's it. As you probably know, missing two days of classes is easily enough to get enough demerits to get kicked out. They call me into the Dean of Men's office. I, they say, what's going on? And I said, I don't want to be here. Now, I'm, I'm still in the no anxiety, but still depressed mode. I'm like, I don't want to be here. And I'm also in, in escape mode Yeah. Uh, in my mind. So I'm like, I don't want to be here. I want out now. Contact my parents. I don't want to be here. So they send me out. They call me back. The dean of men tells me, listen, you don't want to be here. We're going to make, we're, we're going to make that happen. Hmm. And uh, they send me home. The current dean of men, I think he's the current dean of men, just happened to be in my prayer group. His, his name was John Dalton. Hmm. And I'll tell you, at least at that time, he was a really nice guy. And he could see that I was like bound and determined to leave no matter what. And it was funny is because while this is all going on, they had just announced in chapel 
that I was one of the finalists for the commencement competition, music competition, out of all the, there were three of us. And so I remember him sitting outside with me, and I remember him saying to me, Ben, you just announced you're a finalist for this competition. You may win the, com- music, the commencement competition for music and get to play with the orchestra solo, but you're willing to throw all that away just to leave here. And I'm like, yeah, definitely. Because I was in this mode where I'm uncomfortable. Get me out of here, freaking out. And so I met my first wife there at Bob Jones University, my ex-wife. She broke up with me when I left Bob Jones University. I called her on the phone after I got home. And over a series of several phone calls, I talked her back into getting uh, reestablished with me and we eventually got married. But I was still not done self-destructing. Right. I still had some more self-destruction to do. So there. So what, I mean, obviously you got out of there. Was that your kind of last real formal part, being part of that world? Obviously you mentioned your personal kind of journey working through it, but was that your last time being part of an institution connected to that world? No, because then when I uh, married my now ex-wife, now ex-wife, I moved to Ohio where her family was from. And we attended, we were married in, and I attended, and I was the music director for a, for a while at Grace Church of Mentor, hmm. which is now pastored by Timothy Potter. Hmm. He was the assistant pastor when I was there, and he was a classmate of uh, me and my ex-wife at Bob Jones. He was maybe a year or two hmm. uh, ahead of me, at Bob Jones. And uh, I want to say that overall, they are not bad people. Yeah. But I want to give a little bit of my impression of Bob Jones University. Of Bob Jones University supports independent fundamental Baptist churches. Right. Bob Jones University, they are masters at controlling perception. Yeah. They're like Jesuits. Hmm. They are the Jesuits of the fundamentalist movement. If you want to get trained in how to control the perception of your church and to control the people, you go to Bob Jones University because they are much more subtle and right. it's not the, it's not the, the rip roaring. Well, yeah. What he told me, she didn't like what I said. I told her, you need no. to take that up with God because he's the one that said it, not me. Yeah. It's not that. If you listen to a Bob Jones University sermon or a sermon by someone who comes from Bob Jones University, it's like listening to dispensational scholasticism. 
and they are constantly walking on eggshells to make sure that every T is crossed and every I is dotted, and that they are not crossing any positions that Bob Jones University has taken hmm. in formally in their doctrines or theology. Because right. if they do, they're going to risk breaking their informal connection with Bob Jones University. Right. So I challenge you, go on, say, Grace Church of Mentor has a YouTube channel. Go on there and listen to the sermons with what I'm saying in mind. And you will hear they are so careful in everything they say. Now, if you want a, an excellent example of Bob Jones University uh, Jesuit speak, go to YouTube and watch a guy named Mark Ward. He works for one of these companies that sells Bible software, mm -hmm. maybe Logos. Yeah. He has a doctorate from Bob Jones University. I'll tell you, if you're... If your pastor has an upper level to even a lower level, but especially an upper level degree from Bob Jones University, that person is a company man. No. You can't get an upper level or even a lower level Bible degree from Bob Jones University unless you toe the line on every doctrine that they hold a position on. You can't disagree with them in any respect, or you will be denied your degree. There is no academic freedom at Bob Jones University, especially in anything loosely touching on faith. And that would include social sciences. And hey, I'm not a big fan of at all modern social science at all. But there is no academic freedom at Bob Jones University. Yeah. You need to know that if you're ever planning on going there. Right. You're, you're not allowed to think or to be taught certain things. So just as it stands now, I'm curious because I know you definitely want to touch on kind of your parting with your fundamentalist kind of roots. What was it that, that made you personally because it sounds like you, you went the route of so many people, myself included, where you see the problem with the individual systems, but you see the problem with these, this church or this college or this, but the amount of time it takes to eventually see like the brand of fundamentalism and start seeing problems. Like when did that start for you? And I, I guess I'm curious because I don't know, like, where are you at now? What, where have you come to at this point in your life, looking at this, the broader scope of things. Okay. That's a lot, a lot of uh, stuff, but I try to boil this down. Okay. When I was at Grace Church of Mentor, the way I was raised, my father, he was very much in support of fundamentalism theologically, but his background was very confusing is one word you could use. We come from a Mennonite heritage. My family hit the shores of, of uh, the colonies in 1715, mm. fleeing persecution in Switzerland. 
They were Mennonites for generations. My grandfather broke away from the Mennonite church and became a Pentecostal, an independent Pentecostal. That's a jump. <laughs> my grandmother was a prophet. So my father was raised in this Pentecostal, but very strict. So it's Pentecostal at church, but still very Mennonite mm. in, in mindset, home. So he was attracted to fundamentalism because they were rigorously biblical. And he had seen through some of the problems with the Pentecostal and especially the charismatic movement. Right. He had seen the problems with that because they were missionaries, I believe, with the Assemblies of God. If my sisters who or my brother who never speak to me and who do not care whether I live or die happen to watch this, they can type in the notes and correct this. So my background had influences of Nazarene, Methodist. We had attended so many different churches because my father couldn't wholeheartedly accept any of them. Yeah. He had theologically, my, as my brother used to say, he had theologically painted himself into a corner. So we had attended Presbyterian churches, Pentecostal churches, occasionally the Methodist church, very right. rarely, because my mother came from a Methodist background. And uh, independent fundamental Baptist churches, fundamentalist, not Baptist churches. No. Uh, and I had all these influences. So when I was in my, at Grace Church of Mentor, I started having all of these theological doubts about, are, are we really once saved, always saved? Is it, is, is baptism, is it wrong to call it a sacrament or is it, and I started having theological questions that I needed time to examine on my own. But that church, you were not allowed to do that. No. You were a member of that church. There was a very rigorous church constitution that basically said, you, if you're a member of this church, you have to believe this and this and this and this and this and this. And I couldn't. I wasn't for sure about some of those things. And so they started to put pressure on me. Yeah. And when you put pressure on me, I escape. So I told them, as the song says, yo dirt, see you later. And uh, they told me, they sat me uh, down and they told me about people who had left their church before and terrible things had happened to them. And God was not going to protect me and that I would be under the hand of the wrath of God and all of this sort of thing. And I'm like, if you say so, I'll see you. And uh, to make a long story short, after about in my early, early thirties, I became an atheist for about five years. But what I started noticing as I, as I listened to atheists talk, I started noticing that atheists use all the same thought categories as Christians do. Mm -hmm. And the things that they use to criticize Christianity oftentimes are moral arguments. 
arguments. Right. And their moral arguments are coming straight out of Christianity and out of Christianity, out of uh, evangelical Christianity. Evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity get their thought categories from the Roman Catholics. And this is something most evangelicals don't realize. They get, they, they inherited justification by faith from Anselm of Canterbury, I think his name was. So at any rate, somewhere along the point, actually before I became atheist, after my father died, I really had a crisis of faith at that point, and I was looking for somewhere to land, but I knew I couldn't be a, a regular Christian anymore. And I was examining all kinds of stuff at this point. I read Hindu books. I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I read books by, what do you call it, uh, Vietnamese Buddhists. I read uh, the Tao Te Ching. I read uh, my daughter. Uh, I read all kinds of crazy stuff. Eventually, I became an Orthodox Christian, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. Went through my period of being after my divorce was when I became an atheist. My divorce really hit me hard. Yeah. And psychologically, it, it, it like knocked me out. So for about five years, I was an atheist. I very gradually, I would kind of be like, uh, pick it up and I'd put it back down again. Pick it up and put it back down again. And sometimes you would ask me, I would tell you I believed in God. Sometimes you, if you asked me, I would have told you I don't believe in anything. Sometimes if you had asked me, I would have told you I was a Christian. So gradually over a period of time, I eventually became, came back to, to being a Christian. And at this point, I'm just going to be totally honest. At this point, like this moment, I would, I'm comfortable with saying that I'm an Orthodox Christian. Two days from now, I may tell you that some sort of a Protestant Christian who just happens to pray the, the liturgy of the hours and who believes that some kind of weird things. So that's where I'm at right now. No. I'm comfortable with the Orthodox Church, except for a, a few of the things that all Protestants would have a problem with, with the Orthodox Church. Sure. Icons and the Marian doctrines. Yeah. Venerating Church, saints and things like that. Yeah. Venerating saints. And, and the Mary is just a super saint. Yeah. You know? The Orthodox Church, the doctrines, as far as the Marian doctrines, they're like Mary light. Yeah. As far as the, the doctrines didn't develop as far in the East, and they also tend to be more constrained by what absolutely cannot be affirmed by Scripture. Yeah. So they're a little bit more constrained by the Scripture witness in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I really, after my father died, the issue with my father was that, that he, he was a, a very consistent Christian man yeah. from a fundamentalist perspective. But he was also 
severely overweight, hmm. especially toward the end of his life. And I believe that it contributed to his death. He died at age 69, which is not young, but it's not super old either. Right. And I'm not blaming him. But it's in fundamentalism. There are certain sins that are preached against, but gluttony is not one of them. Right. Generally speaking, fundamentalists, especially independent fundamental Baptists, they love to eat. Right. And they love to talk about food. And who doesn't love to eat? But, but they really love to eat because it's the one area of pleasure in their life that they are allowed to give into. So when I was looking at where I was going to land, the Orthodox Christian was good for me because they actually take a stand about, okay, if you're a Christian, it says in the scriptures you're supposed to be fasting. So here, just fast on these days. Yeah, You're going to fast on these days. And that's just all there is to it. Sorry. Yeah. And I, I think that... I think there's merit in that. Right. Yeah. I appreciate you being honest about where you're at now. And that, that that's what I mentioned a little bit ago. It's very difficult breaking down. Like, again, when you've been taught one thing for so long to step outside of it and try to objectively look at anything else or even a different strand of, of your own faith, like even looking at different strands of Christianity objectively is very difficult because you're taught for so long not to like, don't look into this. Don't look at this. Don't look that way. Don't study this. Don't read that book. And it is, it's a very difficult process trying to be objective and read through these things. And, and I appreciate the honesty and with how you approach it, because it is, it's very difficult. Even for me, when people ask, where do you think, what do you think about this? I'm like, man, I'm just trying to survive in some of these areas. Like, I don't know what I think about this and this I'm just trying to survive. And, and go from there. But uh, man, I really appreciate you sharing your story and taking time. I know it's extremely early where you are. And uh, as I'm wrapping up the day, you're just starting. And I appreciate you starting it with me and breaking down your story. I, I want to make sure before I wrap up, is there anything else you want to cover, address, talk about before, before wrapping up? Um, sure. First of all, I'm not telling this story in order to try to get back at or hurt anyone, especially the cause, what in fundamentalism we call the cause of Christ. Right. I'm not trying to do that, and I'm also not trying to hurt anybody in, that is now in fundamentalism. I forgive these people for what they did, because I know that they did what they did. They were trying to do what they thought was right, and they were trying to serve God. Hmm. And I know what that's, I know what it is like to want to serve God. The only other thing I have to say is some of the, some of the young monks went out to one of the abbots in the desert. And they said, Father, teach us. And so he sat down with them and they read a scripture passage. And the father said, Tell me, what does this passage mean? And, he, and one of the, the brothers raised his hand, and he told what he thought it meant. And the abbot said, nope, sorry, you're wrong. And then the second brother raised his hand, 
and so on and so forth through all the brothers until they got to the last brother and he raised his hand and uh, the abbot said, what do you think it, it means? And he said, I don't know. And the, the abbot said, truly, this brother has understood. And the point is that we need to be humble enough as Christians to recognize that it's okay to say, you know what? I don't, I'm not necessarily sure about that. And I need to think about it some more. No. Interesting. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I really do appreciate you sharing so openly. And there's so much that you said that I resonate with now and so many things that have crossed my mind in the last few days. And there's so many, and again, so many things you've said that I know echo for people that have experienced similar things, even now, even in the last decade that have matched some of the things you experienced in the mid 1980s that's still happening and and still going on. So I I appreciate your honesty, both for me and for my audience. And I'm I'm really thankful that you were, you're willing to share. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on preacherboysdoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.